Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 43. And as I was looking at this study and reviewing it and going over it, I saw a lot of things in there that could really kind of apply to the new year, like a new year's study, a lot of things that we could look to. Uh, It's about Israel's Redeemer. In chapter 42, it ended with God grieving over the declining spirituality of his people. Here in chapter 43, God says that in spite of the people's spiritual deterioration, he's still going to be merciful to them and he's still going to bring them back from captivity and he's going to restore them. And he would pour out his love upon them, not his wrath. So then the world would know that God alone had done this. So let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 43. And it says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and who, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. Notice, you are mine. I like that. You're mine. The words here, created and formed, They refer to the creation of the human race in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created Israel and he made her special to himself. God redeemed Israel. God called them by name to be those who belong to him. And God protected Israel when they were in trouble. The Hebrew word created means to fashion anew. It's an act of God. It's a divine activity. And the same word is used in Genesis 1.1 where God created the earth. The second word is formed. It means to shape, to fashion like a potter. And it's used in Genesis 2.7 when God fashioned the body of the first man, Adam, from the dust. So these two words, created and formed, suggest that when God created Israel as a people... It was a decisive thing that he did. It wasn't just spur of the moment. It wasn't just something that he decided to do because he was bored. He had made a determined decision. He had decided to make Israel his people. And it was just as decisive as his determined will to create human beings in the beginning. And in the same way, the New Testament describes Christians as new creations in Christ. And by the use of the words here, notice, uh, by your name, it shows his intimate relationship with the Israelites. Now, we're important to God. And he also calls us by name. And he gives us his name, verse 7 says. And when we carry God's wonderful name, we have to be careful that we're never doing anything that would bring shame to it. Verse 2. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And if you don't already have this underlined, underline it. This is a wonderful verse when it comes through the trials that you go through. He said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, this is a promise that applies specifically to Israel. 
and the way that God delivered them in the past when they crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan River. But it also has a, a great spiritual application for all of God's people through all the ages. And you've probably heard the expression, man, I'm in deep water. Well, God assures me that he's going to go through it with me. And notice in this verse, this verse two, he says three times, he uses the word through. Through. And when you look up the word through in the dictionary, it says from beginning to end. He's going to go through it with me from the beginning to the end. Not under it, not over it, not around it, but through it. We are going to go through difficult times in this journey that we're in. Three times. When I think I'm drowning and I can't stay afloat anymore and I'm going down fast and I'm going down for the last time, He's promised me, notice, those waters, they shall not overflow me. He jumps in and He pulls me out just like He did Peter when Peter thought he was down for the count, when he thought he was going under. He says here, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you. Now the phrase walk through the fire is a, is a metaphor for protection when you're in danger. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace. Now here's something that, that we, we need to understand and to remember. God doesn't open a path for us before we come to that path. He doesn't give us help before we need it. He doesn't clear the way in our life, the obstacles away in our life before we get them. But when we're at our time of need, when we're at that point, then God stretches out His hand. And a lot of us forget this truth and we're always worrying about difficulties we imagine in the future. Here's the new year, but what are you always already worrying about in this year, maybe carried over from last year. You know, we expect God to open and clear all a clear way all the obstacles before we even get to them. Things that may not even happen, but we're already tormenting our minds, worrying about them. Here, here's the thing: He promises to do it step by step. And only when the need arises. When, when, when God told Joshua, we're crossing the Jordan River, it was at flood stage. There weren't any boat builders there. And, and there was no way in their, in their own minds of how they were going to do this. But God said, we're crossing over. But he says, when you step, when the priest would step his foot into the water, then he would divide it. Then he would open a path. See, it wasn't until they got to the point of the problem that God divided the waters. You know, it, first we said, God, you open up them waters and then I'll cross. He said, no, you put your foot, you step to that point, then I'll open it. When I get to there, when I get to that problem, then God intervenes. Only when the need arises. Notice, 
We have to be in, we have to be in the turbulent waters before we can claim God's promises. Peter was in the water when Jesus reached out to save him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in the fiery furnace before God saved them. And we need to remember that because you know, when we see difficulties, we freak out before we even get to them. But God's promised, I will go through them with you. Verse 3. And here's why he says, I will be with you through them. Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. The Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all creation here, declares Himself to be the God of the Israelites. He had every right to be their God and to call them His people. He created them for Himself because He had saved them from the Egyptians. He says, because I am your God, your personal God, because I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He said, I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich Ethiopia and Seba thrown in. He says, that's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. He he said, I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. I'd trade creation just for you. God gave Egypt. He gave Ethiopia and Seba to Cyrus as a ransom payment to redeem Israel from Babylon because Israel was so precious to him. And he gave his son as a ransom for lost sinners. God says, I actually used these nations to discipline you. I allowed them to treat you the way they did, and now I will judge them. Solomon said in Proverbs 21, 18, The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Have you ever wondered why God has allowed the enemy to cross your path and to cause you so much trouble and pain? In the past? Because God did it in order to set you straight, to get you back on the right path, in order to develop you spiritually. God uses the enemy for He used the enemy for your deliverance. Proverbs eleven eight says the godly are rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked instead. In other words, God will allow people to really mistreat us and use them to get my life in order and then He will straighten them out. And here's the thing, God nearly always tests us using other people. Verse 4. He says, Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Israel is considered precious to God. Because of God's sovereign grace. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, he said, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine how much God loves Israel. And we can't even begin to imagine how precious we are to God. Verses 5 through 6. 
He says, fear not, notice, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Fear not, he says. God's people are to fear him, nothing else. To fear him means to hold him in awe, to hold him in reverence. Being sure of his presence in your life, they don't have to be afraid of anything or anybody else. And here Israel's descendants are called by the Lord, notice, he calls the descendants my sons and my daughters. He says from the east, west, north, south, ends of the earth, he says the Lord will gather all his people together and that, in other words, all those who praise him and all those who follow him. God says very, very clearly, he will regather the nation Israel. In Jeremiah 31.10, he confirms this. He says, listen to this message from the Lord, you nations of the world. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. The Lord who scattered his people will gather them and watch over them as a shepherd does his flock. God says, all of you who think God is finished with Israel, he says, hey, listen to this message from me. We're to listen to him. And here's the thing. No matter what the world situation might be, no matter what we see going on in the world right now or tomorrow or next week, God says he intends to regather Israel. We have his word on it. Verses 7 through 10. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is the truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant, whom whom I have chosen. Notice, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, and before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. God says to his people, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have, because I have made them for my glory. He says, I was the one who created them. Bring out the people who have eyes, but they're blind, and they have ears, but they're deaf. He says, gather the nations together, assemble the people of the world. He says, says, now which of their idols have ever told such things, have ever foretold things from the past? You know, which ones can predict what's going to happen tomorrow? Whose idols can predict what's going to happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of these predictions of such predictions? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? In verse 8, as a a blind and deaf witness, which Israel was, they didn't fulfill the prophecy of restoration that was given in chapter 42. And then in verse 10 here, the word you is strongly contrasted by the word I at the beginning of verse 11, comparing the people to himself. Witnesses, they were to be witnesses. Now, witnesses are the people of Israel who had witnessed the great works of God in their midst through the miraculous signs performed for Pharaoh. And then verses 11 through 13 declares the wonderful sovereignty of God. Look at verse 11. 
I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God has no competitor. He has no equal. He alone is God. He alone holds this exclusive position of Jehovah God. Of all the religions of the world, only Christianity guarantees salvation. Now, other religions, they, they, they have a good, they, they, they talk good. They have a good, a good talk. But they definitely cannot and do not guarantee salvation. God says, beside me, besides me, there is no other Savior. We have but one. Israel's calling was to be a witness, verse 10 says. They were to tell the world who God is. They were to tell the world what He's done. And as believers today, we share the same responsibility of being God's witnesses. How will people know if we don't tell them? I mean, they have such a messed up idea and thought about God today. Do people know what God is like by the way you talk and the way you live? Is that how they might be getting their idea of God and the church and Christianity? You see, they can't see God directly. But they can see Him reflected in you and me. Jesus is living out His life in the world through the church. And who's the church? It's not this building, it's you and me. And when we leave this building, the church is not here. It's just wood and plaster and paint chair that's all it is we are the church are we are we reflecting the life of christ through his church what is the image of god that you and i reflect today verse 12 i have declared and saved i have proclaimed and there was no foreign god among you therefore you are my witnesses says the lord that i am god over everything from the beginning of time God's power has been supreme and absolute there is no other never has been never will be as long as time has existed he is God and he's shown himself to be God to show his power he says no one can be delivered from my hand and remember that in these days that no matter what is going on how bleak it might look there's nothing that, 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 that anybody can do to change God's plan, to change what God is doing, to change His power. No one can be delivered from my hand. He says, if God takes somebody in His power, nothing can set them free. Nothing. And if God does something, no one or nothing can put a stop to His plan. This whole pandemic was supposed to be over by now, huh? And the, at the election, the, the Biden says, I'm going to put an end to this. Okay. Worse off now than before. God's in control. If God does something, nobody or nothing can put a stop to his plan. He says here in verse 13, who will reverse it? Who will change it? 
all the vaccines and all the masks and all the social distancing hasn't helped that much, if any. Who will reverse it, God says? Nobody. The answer is obvious. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. The Lord promises victory here. This is what the Lord is saying. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, He says, for your sakes I will send an army against Babylon forcing the Babylonians to flee in those ships that they're so proud of. 14, he says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. The same words are used in verse 1 to emphasize the ultimate source of this prophecy. It's God. The Lord is described as a Redeemer. Why? Because He fervently defends protects and purchases back his people. In ancient Israel, a redeemer was a family protector of trouble and stressed out relatives. And that's what he does for us. He's our protector. He's our defender. When we get all stressed out. Verses 15 through 21. He says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall bring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, and they shall declare my praise. Now Israel is the subject here. And with these titles that, that, that the Lord gives here, In verse 15, the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, the living God is declaring His intimate relationship with the Israelites. He wasn't just their God, but He was also the one who created their nation and who ruled over them. God says, I'm the one. God takes responsibility for bringing them into existence. I made you, He's their King. And this is another confirmation of the deity of Christ because He's their King. When Jesus came to earth, to earth and said He was, the, was a King, Israel knew what He was talking about. Israel knew that he, that he was claiming to be Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew 1.23 And the knowledgeable Israelite understood that. And we've seen that God claims Israel as his own because he created them. You're mine. You you carry my name. And now he speaks of the fact that even the beasts of the field honor him. All of creation honors him. We're the ones who many times don't honor him. And these verses, 15 through 21, give us a picture of a new deliverance for people that are being oppressed once again, like the Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt before the Exodus. 
And in verse 18, the Lord commanded the people not to remember the former things, not to remember the past things. The people established at the first exodus and the, and the conquest of the promised land, he's saying, he, what he's saying is that would be nothing compared to the new kingdom that he was going to establish. So don't look at it as a contradiction where he tells us in, in Psalms to, to look at the, to remember the things that I've done for you. When he's saying don't remember the past, what he's saying is what I've done in the past can't compare what I'm, what, what I'm going to do in the new kingdom. The word former thing, the words former things here refers to the prophecies of judgment by Isaiah and other prophets, the things of old. They would cry out to God again and again. God would hear them and God would deliver them. And a new exodus would take place through a new wilderness. The past miracles were nothing compared to what God would do for his people in the future. And in verses 19 and 20, he says, a new thing will be done. And a new thing refers to Cyrus's command for the exiles, those who were in captivity, to go back to Jerusalem. The fall of Babylon would take place and Israel's rest restoration would take place. The restoration of all things. Verse 22 through 24. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob. And again, Jacob's just another name for Israel. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have, see, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. Notice, you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. He says, my dear family of Jacob, you refuse to ask for my help. You've grown tired of me. You haven't brought me sheep for, or, or goats for burnt offerings. You haven't honored me with sacrifices. He says, though I, I, haven't, I haven't burdened and wearied you with requests, though I haven't burdened and wearied you with requests for grain offerings and frankincense, you haven't brought me fragrant calamus or please me with the fat from the sacrifices instead you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your faults in verse 22 the lord's accusation was that the people hadn't worshiped him in the way he suggested and with the passion and the enthusiasm that he desired the word you here identifies the exiles with their fathers since the exiles didn't have any opportunity to offer sacrifices. And here Isaiah shows us the way to revival. When God re-energizes re us with His life. The point is this, that God would become living proof that He outperforms all the idols and that he really is as good as he says he is the main point of this passage is God's promise to pour out his spirit on us and God never makes promises just to be melodramatic to exaggerate we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and Isaiah tells us why 
God wasn't saying that His people weren't worshiping. He was saying that their worship really wasn't about Him. Think about that. How many times people come to church and they worship, but it's not about Him. It's going through the motion without any emotion. There's no enthusiasm. There's no passion. He was saying that all the sacrifices that you guys are bringing, speaking of the Israelites here, they were far from removing sin. It it wasn't doing any good. They were themselves sins and iniquities. You see, God looked deep into their hearts when they came in to worship Him. He sees into our hearts. He saw what their worship was all about. And he was very disappointed with what he saw. Now, what did he see? Well, verse 23 and 24 says, He saw weariness. You're tired of me. They were tired of God. And to God, that's a problem. It showed their ungratefulness. He says, nor have you honored me. That contrasts with the Lord's patience. He says, you have burdened me. God didn't tell Israel how to worship Him. God gave them an instruction manual on how to worship Him in the book of Leviticus. It's a guide. He's, and, and Jesus said that we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And where do we learn to do that? Through His Word. Again, God did not tell them how. He he suggested how to the book of Leviticus. It gave detailed instructions on how to worship God. They could follow the instructions. And on some special occasions, their worship was was all out extravagant. In 2 Corinthians 7, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 7, 5, we see that one time they, 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 they sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep and goats when they dedicated the temple. Now that wasn't wrong. But here's the thing. If our worshiping of God, no matter how extravagant it is on the outside, If it sinks down to a place where it's just a joyless duty, I'm just doing it out of obligation, it isn't God's will, it's not what God wants. Amen, we have to really examine ourselves when we come in and and say we're worshiping God. He says in verse 23, you have not brought me no sweet cane with money. In verse 24, no, have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices? Now, if God wasn't satisfied with the fat of 142,000 sacrifices, that's the 22,000 and the 120,000 in Second Chronicles 75, if He wasn't satisfied with 142,000 sacrifices, what more could God want? It wasn't about the physical things that they were bringing to God. It was about what was going on in their heart. What were they bringing in before Him to worship Him? What do we bring into this building when we worship God? What He wants is for our worship to take our burdens away. 
That's what the sacrificial system was all about. That's what it was for. God never meant it to be a tiring duty. He says in verse 23, notice, I haven't burdened or wearied you. But all through Israel's history, they treated worship as a way for controlling God. In other words, putting God in their debt. God, you owe me. <laughs> Look at all that I've given you. Look at all that I've done. You owe me, God. So the only thing worship can become is tiresome. When, you, when, a, when a person comes in with that kind of, well, you know, I got to do this. And, you know, I haven't been to church. And so I'm going to go and I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give that. And, you know, that's tiring. It's like, I go, well, you know, I, I did that. I feel good now. You know, I've gone to church and I, and I you know, I, I, I feel better now. That gets tiring. How could it not be tiring? Carrying sacrifice after sacrifice to the temple to obligate God. There's no rest and there's no comfort for us in that. And Isaiah is saying that God himself doesn't enjoy it either. That's not what God wants. I don't want 140,000 sheep and goats if your heart's not in it. I'd rather have one goat with your heart passionately loving what you're doing, worshiping me. The worship that Judah thought put them above reproach with God was itself, in God's eyes, a disgrace. Judah's worship, they thought that it was, it was putting them in good favor with God. But in God's eyes, it was a disgrace. Why? Because it was tiresome and it was heaviness rather than, being, better than lifting man's soul and spirit. What does God say about that? Is he being more demanding than ever? Is he saying, give me the 142,000 sacrifices, smile about it, like it or lump it? He's saying, no, that's not what he's saying. God wants his worshipers to set their heart. God wants to set the, the, the worshippers' hearts free. That's what worship is meant to do. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, who said himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, what is it that God wants us to learn here about worship? Simply this. We blaspheme worship when we turn away, when we turn away of grace into a means of weariness. When we change God's grace into a, a way of weariness. And we really enter into worship when our hearts are revived through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the kind of worship that pleases God. The one who carried our burdens. And you would think that a God as gracious as this and loving in this, that, that, that he'd be irresistible. I want to worship him for what he's done for me and because of my gratefulness to him, that he's lifted me up out of the muck and the mire and he's removed me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light given me a whole new life and he's taken away my sins. That's the kind of worship that pleases him. You'd think we'd automatically be drawn to him. 
that we'd be lining up at the door to come in. But here's our problem. We want something in return for our giving. Lord, look what I've given you. What are you going to do for me? It's ingrained in us. I give you, you give me. Giving in order to get. And this is how we relate to each other a lot of the time. Our natural tendency is to worship God, but not to have our burdens taken away, but to obligate God. And that denies the very heart of God. Verse 25 through 28. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. He says, if the people don't call on me and worship me the way they should, and instead they've gotten tired of me, because of their false worship, he says, you know what? He's still going to show mercy. Think about that. It's his unmerited grace alone. And the Lord chooses to save us and he chooses to forgive us, which comes out of his own character. He can't help it. That's who he is. That's what he is. He's grace and He's mercy and compassion. The only possible conclusion that anybody could come up to, that that anybody could come to, is that the deliverance, it's all God's doing. It's no way the works of the people. It's in no way what they've done. So God tells the people, He informs them, that man's sins are written down in God's book. And those sins must be punished. But God blots out what's written down so it's no longer there to see and accuse the one who has sinned, he says. But God isn't saying that that their sins were blotted out and that justice was ignored because they were deserving of justice, judgment. The punishment that Israel's sins deserve has been fully paid and God blotting them out is an act of His mercy and His justice. It's mercy because He does it out of His own good will, His own good pleasure, and it's only because the debt has been paid. And as we learn later on, it was paid for by the servant of the Lord that was prophesied in chapter 42 of Isaiah. It was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death on the cross and because the sins have been blotted out and can't be seen anymore, they are forgotten, God says. Because because Jesus took our sins upon himself, God can't see them anymore. They've been blotted out of my life. But God says, so make your case against me Let's have this thing out. Make your arguments. Notice he says here, state your case. In other words, prove that you're in the right. Thinking that it's what you've done or what you can do. In case you think, he's saying, in case you think I've forgotten that you have done any good works or there's any merit on your part, 
for why your sins should be forgiven, please put me in remembrance. Please remind me. Please state your case. Show me that. That's what he's saying in verse 26. He said, if, if they can cause God to remember something good that they did on their part, they are to judge him. They're to present the facts. They're to state their case so that God consider and go, oh, well, yeah, maybe, you know, you did, you did do something good. So that they may not be justified by God as righteous. But that they may be justified in the claim that they make for themselves in their ad- and in their attitudes and their actions. So it only makes sense that if the Israelites can't justify themselves, they should submit to the righteousness of God so freely offered to them when he blots out their sins. Look at verse 27. Your first, I'm sorry, your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Israel can't meet the challenge God makes to them. God tells them right there, you have no merit at all because he says from the very beginning, you have been a sinning nation. Your first father, Adam, and then Abraham and, Jacob and and your mediators, your prophets, your priests and your kings who, have, who acted as mediators between me and you, they've all sinned some way. All who in some way would bring the message of God to the people and instruct it in the way it should go. The whole nation was rebellious. So they had no way to say that there was any merit that they could bring before there was nothing they could say that they did that they did well or did good that they could plead before God let's close with verse 28 therefore I will profane the princes or priests of the sanctuary I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches that's he says that's why I have disgraced your priests I have called for complete destruction for Israel and and shame for Israel And in doing so, they will become the opposite of what they are. Instead of being officers or priests, they will become secular individuals, totally incapable of doing the things of God. And as a result, disaster is going to come to the nation. Israel is going to be appointed to destruction, and they will no longer be the people of God, the light of the world, but a nation that's set for destruction. Jacob will simply become a disgrace which explains the judgments that will fall on the people. If Israel is the chosen nation, then why do such disasters happen to it? Because Israel acted like an unchosen people. He said, you guys were chosen. You were my people called by my name. I made you for me. But you've been acting like you weren't chosen. You've been acting like you weren't my people. And that's why the nation must perish. But, once again, there would be deliverance and salvation, but these would be an act of God's grace alone. And in no way due to anything Israel did. It had nothing to do with Israel's worth because they had none. Paul said there is none good, there are none righteous. They have all gone out of their way. And that's true of every living soul. Israel was given totally over to wickedness. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter, Lord, so filled with, Father, such promising words and 
instructions to us, God, on, on God, help us not to be ever tired of God and help us to never weary, God, Lord, with, with our sacrifices, God, that don't mean anything, God. Lord, when we come into this place, God, when we come to worship you, may we bring clean hearts and holy hands, God. Not stuff. Not what I can bring and, and give to you and, and obligate you, Lord. But Father, that we know that you are our creator, the Holy One of Israel, the King, the Savior. And that, Lord, you don't owe us anything. You are no, you are no debtor to any man. We owe you. And Father, we owe you a debt that we can never, ever repay. And we thank you that Jesus paid that debt. And may we be drawn to him. Father, we thank you for giving your son, providing a way of salvation. And Lord, may we honor you with our words and with our works. May we be witnesses in this world, God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome.